Welcome to Aesthetics Mastery, the podcast to help you thrive and raise the bar in your aesthetics practice. I'm Dr. Adam Chong. And I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. Tim Pierce is a GP, founder and director of Skin Viva and Skin Viva Training. And Dr. Adam Chong is, is a, an aesthetic doctor and aesthetic trainer for Skin Viva Training and Skin Viva as well. And a GP. Did I forget that? Got there in the end. You always forget <laughs> it, Tim. Every week, you forget something. Okay, so um, last week we, we talked about uh, some. Botox questions that we, we'd taken from the Facebook group, and we've had some nice feedback from that. I think people have found it really useful. So we only got to cover um, three questions, I think, or three three different people who'd asked questions. So we're going to continue that today. Um, how does that sound, Tim? Sounds great. We do we do seem to. It's amazing how much you can talk about these things, which sound quite simple, and then uh, they take ages to go through. But That's it's right. good. We'll we'll take it to it. We'll take thing make things deeper, and I think that really helps. Yeah. Rather than a superficial covering of things. Yeah. Well, again, we have seven uh, people that have asked questions. Um, we try. We'll try and get through them all. But knowing us, probably get through about one or two. <laughs> but let's see how it goes. So we got up to uh, a question by Lindsay, who has asked. Um, medications and comorbidities not to inject with other than, than pregnancy and breastfeeding. So basically, uh, with Botox, what medications do we need to be aware of and other comorbidities uh, as contraindications? Now, uh, we had a, a quick chat about this. Medication-wise, um, I tend to discuss... Th- these aren't complete contraindications, but just caution with warfarin and NOAX, so like rivaroxaban, the, the anticoagulants. I'd probably just want to know their recent warfarin levels. Um, just make sure they're not off the scale. You can still treat, can't you? You just have to be aware of that increased risk of bruising. Um, and one, if you look on the leaflet for Botox, aminoglycoside antibiotics. Can you just tell us a bit more about aminoglycosides, Tim? Well, the, the, all of these. The, the interesting thing about Botox, just just to take it up a level, is um, it really doesn't interact with very much at all. So we make a, a big thing about the things that it might interact with. Um, and I think it sometimes takes up a lot, like particularly things like aspirin and warfarin, because the reality is the only risk is you're slightly increasing the risk of bruising, which probably isn't that high. And it's not, it's, it's basically, you, you need to have that discussion. But we, we sometimes imagine like we're mixing, you know, warfarin with various things that are going to cause people to have a stroke. And it's not, it, there's nothing that serious, which is, which is one thing you can take, which is, you know, definitely make a careful decision about each thing but there isn't actually anything that you can mix it with that's going to cause a catastrophe mm. so that's useful to know um the the aminoglycoside thing there's a theoretical um ability for both the effects of botox to be potentiated mm. by the presence of an aminoglycoside antibiotic so that basically means it makes the effects slightly stronger you get a better result yeah <laughs> okay we shouldn't let that known otherwise people start trying to source that from somewhere so they get a yeah. potent brow lift well the other thing is, when are you likely to meet someone in an aesthetics clinic who's taking an aminoglycoside antibiotic? You know, it's they, they really aren't. They generally intravenous. Yeah. Um, so some examples being gentamicin. Yeah. Um, what's the other mycin that we use? It's not erythromycin because that's a, a macrolide. There's one other on, on the scale. But gentamicin is the most common one. But the only thing I can think where they might be on it is in the eardrop form because you can get some gentazone, they're called. But with that acting so locally, yeah. I, I personally don't see that as an issue. Yeah, well, this is that's a very kind of GP mentality because we're you know we're used to thinking in that you know when you're desperate and you someone's you prescribe them some ibu gel because you can't put them on, you know, um, 
it's probably going to be okay because it's on, this, on their skin. So we have that approach to lots of things. I yeah. don't think I would not treat someone who's taking an amino glycoside eardrop. Yeah. Um, but lots of people might because it's there in black and white that it, there's yeah. an interaction. But the other way of looking at it is what actually, what would be the result of that? So if you're treating, for example, around a, a frown line, you're, you're very unlikely to cause a, an extra side effect by making that, if, that talk. It's not, yeah. it doesn't cause it to spread. That's another way of looking at it. It's not like it suddenly spreads all over the body. It just makes it more effective for what you put in, in some yeah. way. So that doesn't seem like a particularly risky thing to me. But there it is on the list, and we talk about it frequently. But I don't think it's poten- poten- potentially very risky. Forehead might might be different. You might be more likely to get a drop, mm-hmm. um, but most of the areas of the face, I don't really see it as a a, a practical risk. Yeah. Um, but also at the same time, you might, for medical legal reasons, say because you just don't want that that uncertainty with your patients. Say, well, wait till you finish your ear drops. Come back next week. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good safe way sure. through it. Um, other comorbidities now. Again, looking at the, the leaf that comes with the Botox vial, that talks about neuromuscular conditions being a caution. I don't think it says it's a complete contraindication, but caution with, so um, multiple sclerosis, um, uh, uh, um, Ambert-Leighton syndrome. Uh, myasthenia gravis is one in my head. Is that something else that affects that's, the neuromuscular junction? Yeah, these are all neuromuscular ones. Um, now, Bell's palsy is one that's come up a few times as well. Now, I don't know if you've had any cases. Um, I am aware of a case that we had recently of a lady who had a history of Bell's palsy. She was treated with Botox by one of our doctors, and then when she got home, a few days later, she felt like it was coming on. Now, as it, as it happens, it didn't. There were no symptoms, but she, I think it may have been a psychological effect that she thought there was a bit of tingling starting and numbness or, or weakness, sorry, at the corner of her mouth because it's a, a motor problem. Now, I've since then been a lot more cautious about whether I would treat someone with a Bell's palsy because a lot of the time it could be a viral etiology or it could be idiopathic. I don't think we fully understand every time whether Bell's palsy is what what the cause is. I just wonder whether the trauma potentially could, you couldn't argue either way whether it could spark off another episode of Bell's. What what are your thoughts on that? Um, So mostly Bell's palsy is caused by uh, a viral infection. Mm. Um, That's pretty much what the, the theory is and I can't remember which um, I did. There's a particular type of virus. I think it's um, the herpes yeah, virus. Yeah, HSV or something. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, in my mind, there's no there's no correlation. But but you know how I I always like the psychological element too. That if if you're going into a situation where you've got a very uncertain <coughs> patient who's had a really truly horrific experience, because Bell's mm. palsy is horrific. Like it's there's nothing worse than looking in the mirror and seeing yourself fall apart on one side. Mm. Um, well, there's worse things, but you know, it's it's bad. So you're going to have an, a sensitivity around relaxing muscle in your face <laughs> because mm. that's that's probably one of the worst experiences you've had. Yeah. So you if you go into the situation going, well, you know, it should be all right, you know, a degree of uncertainty, but you go ahead and do the treatment, that's that. what happened to that patient is the kind of thing that happens, which is they go away and freak out. So unless you can go into it with absolute certainty, and, and we've treated lots of people and actually improved symptoms of Bell's palsy, in particular when they have hypertonic areas and flaccid areas. So we had a lady who had a, a DAO that was really dominant. And okay. uh, Dr. Lucy, when she was with us, she injected just four units and it lifted up the corner of her mouth and made her look happy again. It was powerful. Okay. So, so you used it to balance the asymmetry that the Bell's palsy had caused in the first place? Um, it's more that it's, it's, it's not that we were treating the, we were treating the affected side but there was there's a, okay. there was a hypertonic area, so there was an area that was flaccid, and then okay. and it seemed to pull the DAO down. Um, I'm not sure exactly why, 
Um, but that by treating the DO, it improved things on that side, and she was massively happier. Okay. Um, but but yeah, you you. For me, I think it's more. You know, what what do you? There are areas where, it, if it's say it's nearly it's like eighty percent recovered, and your your four all the muscles are moving, but there's just a slight weakness on one side, you might cause a brow drop on that side, for example. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a risk for frown lines. Glabella complex is you're either relaxed or it's not relaxed. It's not like a, you can over relax it. You know, we're always we're usually going for hundred percent in that area. Um, so it it tends to be in areas where you need you want partial muscle movement, possibly around orbicularis oculi, which is a cheek elevator. So if you if you if you've got slightly weak zygomatics and you maybe you know it just works fairly well on on the orbicularis oculi, which is aiding lifting the cheek, you might cause an asymmetry. So it's that kind of it's mm. subtle stuff. Mm. Um, and so forehead orbicularis oculi, not not the glabella complex at all. Uh, and it's more around trying to get your dose exactly what it needs to be to relax the muscle just enough. Um, but I, I think it's probably, apart from the forehead, it's actually rare that you would you would make things worse. worse. As long as you're analyzing and not just doing a standard treatment for everyone, that, yeah. that might change things. Just going back to first principles, I just worry that perhaps the trauma of the needle, you know, for example, a cold sore in the lip, a lip treatment, that the actual trauma could potentially spark off a cold sore that's that's hsv related as well and whether that could be the same anywhere sort of whether that could trigger the hsv virus which could then cause another episode it's just something i got a bit nervous about after after that mm. particular client it made me think a little bit more well, that's interesting well i, I think i mean there's probably that, that no literature a, on this at all is there yeah but, but working from first principles which is usually what we're left with that mm. that does make sense and maybe it's more around lip treatments i mean but this this is the interesting thing is i don't think people having their lips done come in and complain about their bell's palsy they they relate it to botox because it's relaxing the muscle so you probably do a lip treatment on someone who's had a bell's palsy and not worry about it um but yeah that does make sense if you think maybe that could trigger activity of of the herpes virus and then you you might so that that's it would apply specifically to lip treatments unless you've had rarely you know people get it on other parts of their face but usually Mm. it's lips so that's a completely different thought, actually. Mm-hmm. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the bottom line is we might tell people that there is a bit of an unknown here, but very, very unlikely that it would cause a- another episode of, of bells. Yeah. And I mean, you- my gut feeling would be it, it's not likely to cause cause it. It's not something I worry about. But but you have got you've got an argument there. I think that's true. The other neuromuscular condition that I was uh, trying to <laughs> pronounce earlier has just come into my head is Eaton Lambert syndrome. But if we take um, any other one, myasthenia gravis or um, multiple sclerosis. Do you, my, my thought is if something is in remission, um, you know, the small doses that we use on the face are very unlikely to, to, to be an issue. I think if someone's actively got a facial weakness from multiple sclerosis, for example, then you, you'd need to be careful. But mm. otherwise, I think I probably have seen a few patients with MS and still treated because it's been in remission. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think a lot of this advice comes from that first principle way of thinking, which is you're looking for an overlap between the the pathogenesis of the disease and the, and whether how the drug is working. You're saying, well, there's a disorder of the neuromuscular junction here, so should I be adding a drug that affects the neuromuscular junction? Because we're we, we're changing two there are two variables, and I don't understand for sure how that'll work so let's be careful about it yeah so that that seems to be what happens with all these things same with parkinson's and anything that affects muscle movement 
you're, 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 you're then treating within a domain that you're not 100% certain about because we don't normally do that. So we say be careful. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what's going on. It isn't necessarily, as you say, that you're going to make things worse every time, but, but it's going to be easier to make things worse. So we, that's why we're careful. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I can't think of a reason specifically why someone who's had an autoimmune kind of destruction of their of their the schwann cells you know uh, with with um multiple sclerosis is going to be why why treating the neuromuscular junction is going to trigger that yeah now th- there are other things like stimulating the immune system but you know that that's a whole different unknown because that applies to any protein and no one but you know it's not making the argument about the neuromuscular junction there you're, yeah. you're making the argument about the immune system triggering an autoimmune which i don't think there's any evidence for yeah so i would say based on that overlap between this is a muscle disorder and we're treating something that lacks muscle it's 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 caution that's the word it's caution, not yeah. it's not it's not much more than that there's still quite a few unknowns here and maybe over the years more more data will emerge on this but okay so moving on to katie's um question she has asked, I'd like to know how to achieve the best forehead results around the two centimeter safety area. I've had a client with a dynamic line right on the safety border. Can I offer a better technique? So this is, this is just that little line above the arch of the eyebrow when you're, you're trying to <coughs> relax the muscle just enough to get rid of lines, but not too much that you get a drop. Maybe you're, yeah. you're aiming for a little bit of a lift, but you end up causing, leaving a little crease, which bugs some patients. Um, it's... I used to, in, in training, sometimes refer to it as the most difficult part of aesthetic medicine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so long as you're not, if you're, if you're trying to do it with Botox, because it's a balancing act, isn't it? It's literally a balancing act. You put too much in, it drops. You put too little in, you preserve the line. Yeah. So the, the, the answer is you can mess with that balance. So you can get a little bit of movement and think, well, maybe if I put maybe a half a unit in, maybe I'll get that balance. And sometimes you'll be right, but it is tricky because your error margin is smaller as time goes on. Um, the other way is to, is to get trained in advanced dermal fillers and treat it with filler, which, which we, I do quite a lot now, mm-hmm. uh, forward fillers. It's, it's relatively expensive for a small amount. So for, for what the patient might perceive as, as a small difference, because you're, um, you're generally not just treating the crease, you're re- revolumizing the fat pad underneath. So it can be like half a mil. I would use a Volift, something like that. And um, you're looking for people who have that contour where you can see the, the difference between the frontal eminence and the um, the orbital ridge mm-hmm. and there's a little dip which men tend to have more of yeah. um, but women basically they generally shouldn't have much of one but if you refill that this is for someone in their mid-30s at least if you refill that area um, you get rid of that line as well and then you can use normal normal doses of botox but that's that's the other way around otherwise you're you're in the zone of little tweaks trying to trying to just soften a little bit you might cause a drop then you need to get underneath the eyebrow and lift it again and you may find a, a way through but it is it's She's finding it difficult because it is difficult. So I think identifying those patients that are already at high risk of a drop would be key here as well. Because I've seen a few clients like this who have insisted that I treat it with Botox and that they've never had any drop. So I documented that really carefully, treated them, and they were fine. So not everyone will get a drop, as you're saying, but obviously it's identifying those ones that are high risk, which, yeah. which is what we talked about last week as well. I think that's a really good point. You do get an instinct um, for foreheads that are more likely to drop as time goes on. And sometimes it's by dropping foreheads, you know, that you you look back mm-hmm. and you think, oh, that's actually, now that I've now that I've done it, I can see why that happened. And, yeah. and it's subtle. It's really hard to put into words. I do have a video on this, which you can check out on the Skin Viva Training YouTube site. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's called Lecture on... Um, what's it called lecture on brow ptosis and eyelid ptosis and mm-hmm. it includes 
the first part of that is a little is three types of foreheads are a bit more likely to drop um, but even those are not it's not completely comprehensive because uh, it seems to slightly idiosyncratic at least it feels that way and then then you sort of notice patterns over time um, but it is covered in that lecture in more detail this two centimeter safety area i mean often people have quite very strong lines just on that board as well so ignoring the the above the lateral brow but just all the way across the forehead um so for that i tend to if, if i'm happy happy there not high risk for a brow drop i do tend to actually go right on that safety border sometimes maybe a lower dose and i'd use higher up um occasionally edge towards or on that on that line um so that's something else that katie could possibly try yeah you you can experiment and as, and this is a principle that you can apply throughout which is do smaller amounts as you as your level of certainty decreases then decrease the dose um and and tell your patient about it be open and honest you know this yeah. this I can try and get rid of those lines. We are increasing the risk, but I can of a drop, and I can mitigate that by dropping the dose. And hopefully, we'll you know, in the course of the time we work together on this problem, we'll find the perfect solution. But yeah. there's a degree of uncertainty. It's good to be open about uncertainty. And some people, I think, have that forehead shape that absolutely, no matter how much you put in and how low you go down, they would never get a drop in, yep. a, in a million years as well. So it'd be shame to avoid those lower creases on someone like that who's really keen and happy to take the risk of a drop as well yeah i think that's a really important point because um so i mean i was dragged into there's a new zealand doctor who has done a re nice video on treatment but the, the tone is as is often the way with lots of people that there is a perfect formula and i've mm. got the perfect formula and here it is okay. and the truth is there is no perfect formula there's there there are principles which are perfect but none of them apply to all the patients so you it's much more complex than just oh this is the right way to do it i'll just do this pattern of injection and i'll be mm -hmm. have happy clients forever you've got to have paths through the uncertainty and variations and little tweaks so that's a good point yeah, absolutely okay so moving on to deborah's question so we may be getting a little bit a little bit technical and medical on this one the evidence base for the use of apoclonidine eye drops through an upper lid ptosis there doesn't seem to be much research evidence based on only anecdotal evidence for use in to toxin complication thoughts on this over to you yeah. tim so so apoclonidine is uh, is used for glaucoma <coughs> and it's to, it, it it's its purpose is to alter the rate of uh, fluid production and fluid drainage from the eye and it so happens that it has a sympathomimetic effect on the smooth muscle that lifts your eyelid so sympathomimetic means it's imitating the effect of the sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And the sympathetic nervous system, that's your flight or flight, fight or flight side of the system, um, will, if you imagine if you got a big fright, what would happen? Your eyes would, would widen. Yep. So um, that's what it's doing. It's not, it's not licensed to treat brow ptosis, as uh, eyelid ptosis. It's a side effect that they use for those patients. Probably the biggest evidence, the biggest area of evidence base comes from patients with Horner, Horner syndrome. Mm -hmm. Horner syndrome is where the sympathetic supply of the eye is disrupted. Um, sometimes as I, I've met a patient who's had it for years and there was no, no cause identified. They just had a disruption of their sympathetic supply. But classically, it's uh, apical lung cancers that have eaten through the sympathetic plexus. Mm -hmm. So, um, but they, those patients have been treated with those drops for aesthetic reasons basically sometimes it's practical so you can actually see if, if you've got enough of a ptosis you may not be able to actually see out of that eye so it may help um so but it what you're not going to find is a randomized control trial on it or it's too small that yeah. they don't there basically isn't that kind of evidence there's anecdotal evidence there's a really good first principles reasons what reason why it will work mm -hmm. um 
And it does work. I mean, the evidence base is also partly that you'll have someone with a ptosis, you'll put a drop, two drops in their eye, and then five minutes later, their, their eyelid will lift. So it's, it's really, there's a good connection there from clinical experience. Um, but it is off-label. So if, if it um, and potentiates the sympathetic sort of um, system around the eye, one of the things it's going to cause is a dilated pupil, I'm assuming. So that would be something to warn your clients about. Is that is that correct? Do you know, I've, I've never actually put it in a patient's eye and seen it because um, <laughs> we have, I've, once prescri- I've prescribed it once <coughs> and I, mm-hmm. I didn't see the effect. So um, because obviously you send them off to the pharmacy and, and off they go. How do you explain or rectify the little vertical pull lines that some patients get inferior to the lateral brows after a toxin treatment? Uh, Jane thinks that it's partly due to skin laxity, but also due to compensatory hypertonic action of the superior and lateral orbicularis oculi. So the, these are little lines that basically flare outwards. They're like, a, um, they, they come out a kind of, where would it be? On a clock, it would be kind of two o'clock that your the lines would be away from the pupil mm. on the right side and obviously 10 o'clock on the other side. And they, um, they are, how would you describe? They're not parallel with the eyebrow. They're running towards the eyebrow. Um, and they, they come from the same injection pattern where you're trying to do a little bit of a lift. Um, but when you lift, often if you look at the before pictures, there were, there were creases on the, on the upper eyelid that were, uh, were parallel with the eyebrow. And then you basically pull the skin up and then the, the skin causes little folds which then flare in the other direction. And they're sometimes bothersome. Sometimes they're, very, they're quite distracting. Every time you raise your eyebrows, you get this extra. Mm. And because it's near the eye, you don't get away with anything. So... Um, that is partly due to just really thin skin that easily creases. Mm-hmm. And then when you lift it, you're just, you're just folding in a different way. But I, I have cured it by treating orbicularis oculi underneath the eyebrow, just one unit either side of the crease. And that, so that tells me there's two elements going on. And, and it, the question is correct. Partly you have an increase in resting tone um, even while the eyebrows are lifting mm-hmm. of orbicularis oculi. And then you also have the, the nature of the skin because this doesn't happen on everybody. So you can treat it with a little bit more Botox, and that that usually helps in most people, not in everyone. So, and when you are doing the Botox in that region, you're very, very uh, superficial, almost intradermal. Yeah. So I I think about the orbicularis oculi as a barrier to the orbit. So if you want to be safe, you and and you're on the the superficial side, the anterior side of orbicularis oculi, you're safe. So you always try and be as superficial as possible, and then you have the addition. The, basically that's one of the main structures that prevent Botox getting into the orbit which is where all your side effects come from so okay. superficial is important Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> and then a question from Emma who has asked can TOR's uh, toxin cause malar edema when placed on the orbicularis oculi and how can you prevent it please uh, yes it can um, it's more often around the, the whole the, you know, the lateral part of the orbit than the cheek but it, they can interact and it, that also depends on how, how inferior you are in terms of your injection pattern. But basically, the theory is, although there are various things that can cause inflama- you know, edema, um, the most common is that you're just dropping the resting tone of that muscle. I think particularly at night, if you ever watch someone sleep, often people's orbicularis oculi are, are quite strongly contracted. And that's going to exert a pressure during the night that will oppose some of the decreased um, the, 
you know the the pressure when you lie down you have basically have a redistribution of intracellular fluid and, and you, your head gets full of fluid basically mm-hmm. so if you have that but you're not contracting the muscle then you can get a buildup of fluid underneath the eye oh, interesting. Okay. and then you're that's also going to show up there more than anywhere else because you've only got a 0.2 millimeter thick dermis so um it's very easy to see now you 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 i have actually noticed in my late 30s that i look better in the morning mm. because i i have volume loss around my eyes which in the morning is gone for mm-hmm. a bit and i think oh there you are that's why we do these podcasts in the morning yeah 28 year old tim is back in the mirror that's yeah. great okay. um so but if that goes too far then you get puffy so the, the theory is you've in certain people and it just doesn't happen in all people the orbicularis oculis resting tone is really important for keeping fluid out of that area and if you relax it you get a build up of fluid and it's simply like it doesn't have to change that much if you think about it, it's a little bit like um you know, a, a drainage system. If, if something just drains two percent slower, but it does that for three days, mm. you can build up quite a lot of extra extra fluid. Okay. So um, that that's all that that probably is. The ways of mitigating that risk are to either reduce the dose so that you leave some some muscle um, active, so you reduce the dose, or you reduce the you move more superior so that you're not as not as close to the cheek. And I quite probably a more common injection for me is two units and the, at the inferior injection rather than four, which is what the licensed dose says. So I do that yeah. fairly routinely. Partly just, for that reason. Excuse me. Just to clarify for people, the, the malar edema is the little, um, like, edematous, little pockets of fluid that you often get on the, the eminent, the zygomatic eminence. Yeah. Um, so the, it's like a little pouch, a little triangle form cut out by two ligaments. You've got orbicularis oculi retaining ligament and then zygomatic ligament. Yeah. They meet in a little Y shape, mm. Y on its side. And in that pouch, it's a little bit prone to accumulating fluid. Mm. So if you change something else, because some people have malodema without any Botox or anything, yeah. but you, if you then reduce drainage through that by re- reducing the strength of the muscle, you might get worse, worse problems. That's basically what's happening. Also, fillers would be a, a contraindication at that point. Would yeah. you avoid fillers completely with some, if someone's got malodema? Um... I, I, I avoid injecting that area, but I might go very close to it, slightly above or below the ligaments. Quite often, I, I treat that area, um, okay. but but you stay out of that exact triangle, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. And then uh, Laura has asked, what does Tim think about the difference between doctors and non-medical prescribers not being able to hold stock? Well, um, so this is... The, this is something that's actually changed in. I, I basically, what, if you, this this is this is uh, this almost opens a whole big <laughs> can of worms. Um, right, we'll leave it there. For <laughs> <laughs> well, what's happening in the in the NHS and across the world actually is that we are that we're that people are developing and they're growing and their skill base is is they're mo- we're moving away from 1960s medicine where the the doctor made all the decisions and everyone else executed on his decisions and. And that's a healthy thing. That's what that's what happens when societies develop. Is you take people who were only capable. It's the same with your kids. Your children haven't started school yet, but my child is learning stuff that I I was not learning at that age. Mm-hmm. You know that they. He, it's a, it's amazing actually because I think I was six. Before, it, it was South Africa, so it might be different. But I wasn't learning to read at the age of four, which is when he started. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's kind of a parallel there with everything. Is we take people who've been educated at a certain level and we think, well, maybe you can do more. Mm. And we let them have a go and, and they do a good job. And then we give them more privileges. And what is happening with the with nurses at the moment is they are in a transition fit period. And I, I think in five years' time, that'll become one of the things. It's happened in Scotland already. So in Scotland, you can hold stock. Yeah. I, don't, I can't quite get my head around why... 
you'd be able to prescribe and not hold stock. It feels like the most important aspect of the system is is the prescription. And so if you have the privilege of holding prescription, being able to prescribe, then then why would stock be different? Mm-hmm. Um, In Scotland, it's um, nurses that can hold stock. I don't. It's not. Necess- is it non-prescribers as well? I, I thought it was nurse prescribers. No, uh, I think you have to be a prescriber. Okay. She, she is. A, she's saying a, non-med- a non-medical prescriber is a yeah. prescriber. They're just not doctors. Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or dentists. Yeah. 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 So there is that that key distinction between why why can a, a doctor and a dentist. Um, have the power to hold stock of, of Botox. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. There seems to be no logical reason why, you know, that it, holding stock is any more dangerous or you need more responsibility, more experience to do that. Yeah. Do you think it will change anytime soon? I don't know if people got the appetite to change it. I mean, it depends how much pressure is put on people to change it. Or, you know, or, or the other reason would be that, because I don't think it'll come from medical aesthetics. It'll come from hospitals saying, you know, we're actually running because there are hospitals that are hugely less dependent now on doctors. We have nurse practitioners, and they're just fewer. Mm-hmm. So may, maybe there'll be some situation that starts to become starts to become clear that the people making the clinical decisions are being held back by basically a, a slightly old-fashioned idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think it will change eventually. I mean, I, I'm not in touch with the the powers that be on this topic at all. But but the fact that it's changed in Scotland is quite is quite um, positive in terms of it changing. Yeah. Okay, I think we'll leave it there. Um, there is another question from from Sophie about um, mid face complications, but I think maybe we could do a whole other podcast about um, lower face, well, mid and lower face Botox and and complications. Otherwise, we we could be here a while. Um, also, myself and Dr. Ahmed, uh, we did a, um, a, a podcast on the myths of Botox, and I think we did cover. Um, sorry, no, we did one on advanced Botox techniques as well. So there is some coverage of, of that um, there, but maybe we, you and I could go into a bit more detail, and um, particularly complications in future weeks. Great. Yeah, we can do that. Okay. Um, and then there are a couple of things just to let you guys know that we now have a cadaveric masterclass. It's uh, starting on the 17th and 18th of November, our first one, and then we'll hopefully do them regular, regularly. That's going to be at Keele University, and we're going to cover the uh, a lot of really detailed facial anatomy in a way that you can't really do from textbooks um, and then it's obviously it's focuses on reducing complications particularly vascular complications so um, if you're interested in that it's on the skin viva training website if you go to courses you'll find um, the cadaveric masterclass right at the bottom of the option list so it's a two-day workshop isn't it yes first day is lectures i understand yes um, so one is you'll be is basically it'll be a live dissection where we talk through each part and talk about injection risk and we'll also cover other things like the physiology of, of aging um, and um, the important structures and how to reduce risk. I'd like to give people that real sense of of how how small adjustments in your technique will, over time, reduce your risk substantially when you really understand, when you have that three-dimensional model in your head of what's going on underneath the skin. Sounds great. Um, and then also, uh, anyone who's following me on social media knows I'm up to my neck in Botox Complications course, um, which I'm really excited about. I know we t- we've had a nice discussion today, but it goes into even more depth um, and it's going to hopefully make people real real masters of that aspect. So first will be Botox complications and then we'll do filler complications next. I did actually think I was going to do them all at once, but oh my gosh, it's a lot of work. So, um, <laughs> But it's going to be good though. I'd rather get it, get it right than uh, try and do too much at once. Okay, well, thanks very much for that, Tim. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Great. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan.